Proverbs chapter 7 is where we are going to be. So if you will turn there in your Bibles, uh, and I do ask that you find a Bible either on your phone or in front of you in your hands, and follow along this morning as we continue our exposition through, uh, through Proverbs, the first eight chapters of Proverbs. And then we are going to kind of change pace as there's no way to do an exposition of the rest of Proverbs. It's just too random. So we're going to go topical after the eighth chapter. But we are in Proverbs chapter 7 this morning. Let me read to you this chapter, and then we are going to dive into God's Word this morning. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house I have looked and, I, and through my lattice I have seen among the simple I have perceived among the youths a young man who's lacking sense, and he's passing along the street near her corner. He takes the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night in darkness. And behold, the woman meets him. She's dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not home. He has gone out on a a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home again. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter. Or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. Or as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim she has laid low. And all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol. Going down, to the chambers of death. Father, we ask that you open our eyes to this passage. Illuminate this text for us in our hearts. Let us uh, see Christ as our ultimate hope against all temptation. For the sake of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Why does God care about sex so much? On one hand, we live in a society that is hyper-sexualized. Sex is everywhere. We are hyper-sexualized. On the other hand, we live in a society that is casual about sex, that sees sex in a very recreational way, that sees the genitalia as not much uh, any, any more sacred than, say, a hand or a foot. We use it as a body part for recreation, 
But God seems to think very highly of sex. Why does God care so much about sex? Well, it's because sex is not the invention of lovers. But sex is the invention of a creator God. It's something then that is sacred. Now, we instinctively care about sex as well. So no matter what you believe about sexuality, we all instinctively think deeply and care deeply about sex. We instinctively, I believe, sense that there is something sacred to this thing called sexual union. Every parent gets to the point of their parenting game where they take their child or at least think about taking their child on their knee and having the talk. It's time that we have the talk. Why do we do this? Well, it's because we, we actually do think very highly of sex. And as parents, we often know how vicious the temptation can be. And we also know how destructive the fall can be. One of the clearest rebellions against our Creator. So here in the 8th chapter of Proverbs, we see the Father doing just this. He takes the Son on His knee and He says, it's time for us to have a chat. The Father thinks a lot of sex, but God thinks a lot of sex. This is why, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we were in chapter 5, and chapter 5 was about adultery. Now, two weeks, three weeks later, if, if I was just sort of preaching uh, on my own, out of my own wisdom, I probably would not have chosen to preach on adultery this week again. But when we preach expositionally, we just preach through the Bible the way God has ordered it. And we see that chapter 5 was about adultery. We see that chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse, uh, verses 20 through the end of the chapter, 35, is about adultery. We also see that this whole chapter of 7 is about adultery. This means that a quarter of our entire exposition of Proverbs chapters 1 through 8 will be about adultery. God thinks much of this. And so does this father. And so this father has this talk with his son. Now this father tells the son in having this talk a tale of temptation. He talks about this real life story that he witnessed where he was gripped with this, this case study, if you would, of a young man who was caught in the snag of temptation. And we learn from this tale of temptation who temptation snags. We also learn what temptation offers. We also learn what temptation promises. And we also learn where temptation ultimately leads, but ultimately and finally we learn that temptation can be resisted. And so this is the talk that dad is having with his boy. Look at verse 6 and 7. The old man says, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I've, I've perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. And so here's this man that's, that stumbles into the middle of this crowd of youth. And we see here who temptation snags. And that is this, temptation snags the fool. 
Temptation comes to both the wise and the fool. But temptation never snags the wise. Because the wise are, 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 are formed, are shaped by wisdom. And so back in chapter 5, when the father said, hey, don't even go near the door of her house. Remember that instruction? Well, the wise listen to this. The, the wise don't go near the door of the house, and so therefore they are not snagged by temptation. But we see who temptation snags, and that is this fool or a young man here lacking sense. How do we know he's a fool? Well, first of all, he goes near the door of her house. He goes near, look at verse 6, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. This is exactly the, the kind of thing that the Father warns against in chapter 5 when he says, listen, this, the, the seductors don't even go near her. All right, don't play these innocent games, he's saying. Don't linger for five more minutes on the website. Don't, don't go back to say goodnight, all right? Don't just drive over there just, just to see him. Like, don't, don't play these innocent games where, quote-unquote, nothing's going to happen, right? Because you know that you actually, down deep somewhere in the darkest recesses of your heart, want something to happen, which is why we play these games. So this man is a fool in the sense that he ignores wisdom, and he goes near her house just to maybe see what's going on, just to see where she lives. This innocent fool. We also know he's a fool because he plays with fire. Look at verse, or chapter 6, verse 27. He says, can a man carry fire? He's here again speaking of adultery. Can a, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Well, the answer to that is no. Imagine you're sitting around a bonfire with the fool. And the fool looks at this burning log and says, I wonder if I can pick that up and carry it close to my chest and not be burned. Should I try? And you're like, yeah, whatever, dude. And he gets burned. Why? It's because fire burns. This is the nature of fire. You get close to fire, you carry a burning log on your chest, and you get burned. Well, this is the same thing with, with temptation. We get near it. We think we can get near it. We think, you know, how close can we get? How far can we go? How many conversations can we have? How many text messages can we send? How, how, how much can we flirt back and forth without falling? We, we think we can play with fire and not get burned. This man is a fool. He's a fool because he, goes, he thinks he can go near her door and nothing will happen. He thinks he can play with fire and not be burned. Temptation snags the fool. And temptation always snags the fool. Now, what does temptation offer? We see this as well. As the, as the man peers through, he sees what temptation offers first. She offers her flesh, but not her heart. So we see that temptation offers then a counterfeit joy. Everybody say this together. Counterfeit joy. Counterfeit joy. She offers her flesh, but she does not Offer her heart. In verse 10, we can tell that the man uh, peering through his window, he can overhear the conversation that's being had between this, this woman and, and this fool. 
Behold, he says, a woman meets him, and this is how he describes her. She's dressed as a prostitute, yet wily of heart. Now, this word wily in the Old English means tricky. It's an Old English word. Wily is not the best word uh, used to translate this Old Hebrew descriptor. The Hebrew word literally means guarded or hidden. So you could literally read this, that she comes out and she is dressed like a prostitute, yet guarded at heart. That's how it literally reads. What does this mean? It means that she'll give the flesh, but not her heart. It means that she'll give her flesh, but not her commitment. It means that she'll flaunt her body, yet she won't flaunt or give her soul. It's a counterfeit kind of joy. It, it, it feels like the real thing. It seems like the real thing, but it's a counterfeit kind of joy. Listen, God, God is a no-nonsense kind of creator. All right? He created the world to make sense. All right? So we can, look, we can observe the world, and, and it should just simply make sense. God says through His Word, essentially this, I'm, I'm summarizing, essentially this, don't give your body to someone before you're willing to give your life. Don't give your body to someone before you're ready to give your children. Don't share your bed before you're willing to share a bank account. Don't share your bed before you're willing to share a future together. You see, the Bible just makes the bed, what happens in the bed, is a picture of marriage. So the, the, the clothes coming off, the nakedness, this complete vulnerability, this complete acceptance of the other is a picture of marriage. This complete vulnerability, this complete coming together, this complete union of two lives as, as one. So God just simply wants the world to make sense. And what's happening here is she's offering a counterfeit joy, meaning it at first feels like this kind of love. It feels like this kind of commitment. There's a sense of intimacy, but it's all counterfeit. It's false. It doesn't last. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing there that is that is, that is joyful, that produces a long-lasting kind of joy. Secondly, we also see in verse 18 that she offers a counterfeit kind of love. Look at verse 18. Come, let us take our fill of love until morning. So she has a limit on the, the time span of love here. She's offering to this man a night of love. Well, there's a lie in that statement in and of itself, isn't there? Because love does not just last for a night. The very nature of love is, is union and commitment beyond challenges, beyond the, the, the sun rising, all right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love is not boast, does not boast. Love is not rude. Love insists, does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable. It is not resentful. Love 
does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never ends. And she's offering love for a night. It's a, it's a counterfeit kind of joy. Because true love during a night continues into the morning. And the individual w- would wake up um, happy, full, satisfied, content. But temptation doesn't offer that. It's a counterfeit joy and a counterfeit love for a moment. The American Reader and Online Magazine has an article called Exposing the Myths of Recreational Sex. And there are three main points in this article. Number one, recreational sex produces or has produced a dramatic increase in STDs. Number two, recreational sex leaves young people alone and lonely. Number three, recreational sex makes girls the loser. As a third of girls who participate in recreational sex are unhappy, a quarter are depressed, and they are three times more likely to commit suicide than girls who do not participate. The magazine ends by saying the harsh realities of casual drunken sex should make the choice of abstinence very simple. No matter how many years have passed since the time of adultery, you will never hear a man or a woman say, you know, the best decision I ever made in my life was to commit adultery that night. The, most, the, the best decision I ever made was to look at porn that day. The best decision I ever made was to have casual sex without commitment, without marriage. The best decision. We'll never say that. It's counterfeit. There, there's a sense in the moment of something real. It feels like love. It feels like intimacy. It feels like vulnerability and two coming together as one, but it's not. She's guarded at heart. She's offering love for a mere night. And there's a counterfeit joy that leaves both parties dissatisfied. Waking up in the morning with with regret as opposed to uh, joy and happiness. Waking up, however, uh, with true joy, with true joy uh, when there is real love that is present. Okay. Who she snags is the hypocrite. What she offers is uh, a counterfeit kind of joy. The fool buys the counterfeit. Now, the tale of temptation here with the father continues, the saga continues, and, uh, and, and we discover here what temptation promises. First, temptation promises sensuality and pleasure. Temptation also promises security. Look at the text. Look at verse 14. She says, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. Well, what does that mean? In, in the ancient context in Israel, when sacrifices were offered, what that would mean is that there was roasted meat left over for a feast. 
a, a feast that would be eaten after the sacrifice. So it's very possible that she's simply saying, look, there's a, there are slabs of roasted meat in my house that we can, we can sit and enjoy, all right? That's very possible. Also, what we see here, though, is sort of like this doubly troubling kind of reality, and, and that is this. Uh, she's also kind of flaunting her religion. So, so here she comes, and she's, she's not a pagan. She is a religious girl. She's offered sacrifices. She has paid her vows. You see, the tempter comes, and they offer religion. She's a good Christian. She goes to church. She can sort of explain what the gospel is. She's not perfect. She's got her problems. But she's a good, she loves Jesus, right? And how do you know that she loves Jesus? Well, she's willing to take your, her clothes off for you. That's how you know. It doesn't make sense, does it? But there's a sense in which she's using religious language here as a, as a sense of security. Also, she very clearly offers sensuality. We see in verse 16, there's luxurious furniture in her home. Verse 17, there's aphrodisiacs she's offering. Verse 18, she's offering a good night of pleasure. She says, take our fill of love until the sun rises. This is a good deal, all right? Not only does she promise the sensuality, but she also promises security. In verse 19, we see that her husband is gone. She says he's on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. He's not going to come back for a long time. What does this mean? It means that we're not going to get caught. Like we're secure. Temptation always comes with an offer of security. Temptation, I mean, this is what makes temptation tempting. It's because we can get away with it, right? That's, that's the very nature of the temptation. And so she offers this sense of, it's just you and me. It'll be just our, just our secret. No one will never know. It'll be as if it never happened. My husband will not be home. You don't need to worry about a thing. The history can be deleted. The magazine can be thrown away. The relationship will be our secret. It will be as if it never happened. Nobody will know. That's like the most atheistic statement anybody can make. Isn't it? Essentially, what we're saying there, and I don't, I don't care what you believe in your head about God, if, when we give in the temptation because we can get away, because nobody will, we're essentially making a statement um, that, uh, that there is no God who will know. At the very least, we're making a statement that God is not supreme, that we're more concerned about the fear of man than we are the fear of, the fear of God. And so the supreme being in your life, uh, your wife in this case, or her husband in this case, uh, the supreme being in your life, your friends, your church family, whoever they might be, the supreme being will never, get, will never know. Living life as a practical atheist, we can get away with it. She offers sensuality. She offers security. And the fool is snagged. We see this counterfeit joy. We see this offering of security. But finally, we see where temptation leads. As the saga continues and as the Father continues to see just what, what the, this drama that, that, that plays itself out in front of Him through the window. Look, look where He says temptation leads. In verse 21, with much seductive speech, she persuades Him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, as, as a stag is caught fast. 
till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. Verse 27, her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. The destination is death. And we see that first the fool is surprised by this. In the very nature, the way he tells the story, she's, she kind of drew him in with these smooth words, this smooth talk, this, this alluring language. And, and I believe that there's this sense in which he's caught off guard. There are three examples that the father uses to explain how caught off guard the fool actually is by this. First, we see this example of the ox who's being led to the slaughter, the dumb beast, right? And the stag or a deer who's just kind of caught standing still until his liver is pierced by the, hunt, uh, the arrow of the hunter. Dumb deer. Easy prey. Or the bird who flies quickly into the trap. Stupid bird. Right? Just this, this alluring sort of smooth road that is paved for the fool. Yet he's like a beast being led to his own destruction. And what's most heart-wrenching of all is in verse 27, we see that her house is the way to Sheol, which is an old word for hell, for the grave, for death, which means a commitment, a commitment to, uh, to any sin, a commitment to sexual sin, is an indicator that this fool is not a citizen of the kingdom of God. What does this mean? It means practically that the fool is giving into temptation and he's ignorant of his own destruction. The horrifying reality here is that he doesn't see it coming. It also means this, that if the fool, uh, let me put it this way, if you try to wake up the fool, the fool will despise you. If you try to alert the fool, the fool will say that you are overly uh, cautious. It's not that big of a deal. If you try to uh, encourage the fool to open his eyes, he will be annoyed with you. Proverbs 9.8 says, Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Rebuke the fool and they will hate you. He's ignorantly running to his own death and he doesn't even realize it. Turn back with me to chapter 6, verse 20. Or verse 30, I'm sorry. Verse 30 through verse 33. It says this, people do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his own appetite when he is hungry, but if he is caught, he's going to pay sevenfold. He will give all of his, go- his goods and, uh, of his house. But he who commits adultery lacks sense or is a fool. He who does it destroys himself. Well, what's this saying? It's saying that the man who steals a, a loaf of bread because he's hungry, he's going to pay, all right? There's a fine, a flat Big fine, a sevenfold, the price of uh, the, the loaf of bread that he's going to have to pay, but, but we kind of understand it. It's not the, like it's a sin that's forgotten, essentially. Like nobody, nobody looks down on him for stealing a loaf of bread because he was hungry. But ah, he says, the man who's caught in adultery, the man who commits adultery said, This is a fool. You see, the, you see the comparison here. This is a fool who's destroying 
his life. He's destroying his life. The, 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 the man who has committed adultery is a person who can be forgiven by the grace and the blood of Christ. He's a person who can be uh, redeemed, restored back into the full fellowship of the church. Yet, there is a deep scar that this individual will always carry. Wasn't Grandpa the one who committed adultery? Often these stories are written to the biographies of these individuals. See, God is concerned for this fool. This father is concerned for his son because this is a sin that is leading to death. And he's ignorantly running to it through a quick whim of the heart, a decision that is made based on these counterfeit realities that are presented to him. So what is our hope? What is our hope? If, if temptation is coming our way, and friends, I, I speak to you as my brothers and sisters whom I love. Temptation is coming our way. Your way, my way, we will be faced with temptation. In the midst of the temptation, what is our hope? Romans chapter 6, verse 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. For if we know that our self was crucified with Him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. There is a similarity between the fool and the wise. The similarity between the two is that the fool is a fool. And the wise once was a fool. You see, nobody is born wise. No, we are born fools. We are born enslaved to sin. We are born under the tyranny of wickedness. We are born caught in sin's snare. The difference between the fool and the wise is that the wise have found their identity and union in Christ. The wise have seen the crucifixion of Christ and they have seen that as Christ died on the cross that His blood forgave them of their sins. The wise see their union with His death and the death to their flesh. And they see their union in Christ as He is risen victoriously from the dead. The wise are freed from the tyranny of sin. The wise are no longer under the power and the dominion of sin. Sure, they are still under the presence of sin. The wise continue to sin. But the difference is this. The wise live a life of confession and repentance of sin. And the fool is ignorant of his sin under its power. So how do we resist temptation? I mean, if this whole passage is about resisting temptation, uh, we've basically like seen this story, the tale of temptation. We've watched how this, this young man, this young fool, just falls into temptation and is snagged. How do we not do that? How do we resist? Turn back to the beginning of the chapter. It's, you know, we always want to make things more complex than they are. 
We want to we find a silver bullet. We want to find something that we've never seen before. Uh, you want me to tell you some little trick on how to avoid all temptation or how to, how to get through any kind of temptation that comes your way. Friends, there is no trick. But it's written right here in the text. The answer, look at it. He starts out with this declaration. He says, my son, keep these words. Treasure up my commandments with you so we keep the word of God in our heart. Verse 4, say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So how do we keep from the snag of temptation? Well, there are two declarations we must say. First, we say to wisdom, you are my sister. Well, what, what does that mean? Well, wisdom is, is not a person. Wisdom is not a God. But Christ is the fullness of God's wisdom. Christ, all the wisdom that we need is seen in the person and the work of Christ. And it was Christ who said, my brothers and sisters are those who do my will. Or do the will of the Father who sent me. My brothers and sisters are those, are those who follow me. And so we are caught then in temptation. And temptation is luring us and it's selling us these false promises and ideas. What is our response? How do we resist? Well, we turn to Christ. And we cry out to Christ and we say, You are my brother. And I am your sister. I am your brother. Help me act like it. Help me to do your will. Help me to be faithful to you. And friends, listen, you will resist temptation. You will not fall into temptation while you are having an ongoing chatting relationship with Jesus. And so we, we call out to Christ, our brother, and he says, secondly, he says, say to wisdom that you are my intimate friend, or this also means relative, mean, meaning the, the very stuff that I am. You are my identity. You see, when Christ lived His life and He died for us, rose from the dead for us, the Apostle Paul says that we take on His identity. His identity is placed in front of us and we are wearing now His clothing. We are covered in His blood and we are covered in His righteousness. Christ is our identity. We say to Christ, You are my intimate friend. You are my identity. And we know that there isn't a temptation that came upon Christ which snagged him because Christ was the wisest man to ever walk this planet. Tempted in every way as we are. Everybody say, every way. Tempted in every way as we are. Yet, with no sin. There isn't a battle that Christ has not fought and won. There isn't a battle that he hasn't experienced. And friends, there isn't a battle that he will not carry you through. Just as your regeneration was a miracle, your sanctification is a miracle. Just as God, like, in his grace, transformed you and made you into a new creature who had faith in Christ. Well, that same kind of grace is the grace that will keep you, that will not let you slip, that will not let you fall, 
that will turn your face toward your Savior. And you'll hear your Savior say, I am your brother and I am your identity. This old song or this new song, I turn to wisdom not my own for every battle you have known. My confidence will rest in you. Your love endures. Your ways are good. For I am weary with the cost. I see the triumph of the cross. So in its shadow I shall run till you complete the work begun. Let me close by stealing an illustration from John Piper. This is how he illustrated the power of temptation, the power of sin, and our resisting it. Imagine that there are three men sitting at a pit. The men have around them a wire noose around their necks going into the pit, and there are weights, the weight of temptation pulling them into the pit. At the bottom of the pit are naked women, naked men, adultery, pornography. The first man feels the weight of this temptation. 20 pounds of weight, 30 pounds of weight, 40 pounds of weight. The wire tightens around his neck and he can't take it anymore and he leaps into the pit. The second man feels the same pull, 30 pounds of weight, 40 pounds of weight, 50 pounds of weight, 60 pounds of weight. He can't take it anymore. There's, the, the, the wire is, is, is bruising his neck and he leaps into the pit. The third man, 40 pounds of weight, 50 pounds of weight, 60 pounds of weight, 80 pounds of weight, 90 pounds of weight. The wire is now starting to cut his skin. 100 pounds of weight, 120 pounds of weight. He screams out, no, I will not. He looks across the field and he sees there his wife working and she's trusting him. He sees his children playing over here and they are trusting him. 120 pounds of weight, 130 pounds of weight. By this time, there is blood running down his shoulders. He grabs onto a cross-shaped tree and hangs on with all of his might. 140 pounds of weight, 150 pounds of weight. And with that, the wire snaps. And he is lying there, bruised, bloodied, and victorious. Hebrews 12.4 in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. May we be a bloodied church. May we be a church that has clung to Christ, lived in the shadow of his, the cross, sought him as our brother, as our identity, and found in him all that we need. And may we act as we are. May we fight. May we resist. May we be victorious. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this chapter on temptation, this story that you have preserved for us in Proverbs of this, this fool who's ruining his life. God, let us be a people that are shaped by wisdom. Let us be a people who live lives with grace, live lives to the fullest, not necessarily in what we have 
or what we attain. But in the way that we fight, may we be bloodied in this battle, bruised in this battle. Yet, may we lie there victorious, clinging to our only hope, and that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.